How's everybody doing? Good. I'll tell you what, you look good. I'll tell you that. You look really good this morning. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is JT. I am one of the pastors here at Freshwater Church. So thankful that everybody's here today. If I didn't get a chance to meet you before the, the sermon, I would love um, to get a chance to meet you. Um, you can just come up and, and find me after the service. I'll answer any questions that you have. I need my water. This is going to be a doozy today. I'm going to need to drink a lot to get prepared for this. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you're kind of unfamiliar with the Bible, Philippians is towards the back. It's about, I don't know, 85, 90% of the way through your Bible. It's a short four-chapter little book that you can miss pretty easy. If it, you have trouble with it, you can just look it up in the, the, the table of context at the beginning of your Bible. All right, so today I'm just going to jump right in. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say this, um, and I have no idea who originally said this, but someone just said it to me the other day. They said, everything comes back to Genesis. In particular, what they meant was, everything comes back to Genesis 1 through 3. And I tend to agree with that. And, and honestly, I don't even really mean just biblically. I mean, I think in life, I think practically everything comes back to Genesis 1 through 3. I mean, the way that life plays out, the way we see human nature play out, our responses to the world, our responses to each other, it all really comes back to Genesis 1 through 3. And how? how? It, it, it's because it all comes back to God's perfect creation and the ones that he created to rule over that perfect creation as his image bears. A passage some of you are probably familiar with, Genesis 1. We got that over there, Isaac? I didn't know you were doing it. Okay, I was expecting to see Tony, but you look great over there, man. Genesis 1, 27 through 28 says this. So God created man and that man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have, this is an important word for today, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we're created in the image of God, right? We're created to reflect who he is, his character, his love, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the fruit of the spirit, right? When we, when we live in the fruit of the spirit, gentleness, love, peace, joy, patience, all those things that we're reflecting who our God is, who he created us to be. But I, I don't know that a lot of us think of this, but we're also created to reflect his authority, to reflect his dominion, right? He gave us authority over all creation. God created this beautiful creation, and he basically said to us, here, it's yours. Now, of course, God has ultimate authority over all those things, right? But he said, I'm giving you dominion. I'm giving you authority over these things. All of creation was really created, number one, for God's glory, to display how good he is, and number two, for us. How amazing is that, if you really think about it? That's an amazing thing that God has given to us, has, has done for us, has given us authority over. It's beautiful. And so over that authority that he gave us, he gave us what? How many rules did he give us? Does anybody remember? One. One rule. Right? One, one thing that our authority really was dependent on. One thing that really just clearly displayed that we are not the ultimate authority and that he is the ultimate authority and that we are to obey that authority. And what was that one rule? Hey, listen, all the fruit is yours. All the plants, the birds, the sea, all, all of it I created for you. Don't eat the fruit from this one tree, the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat that, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to die. So that was it. That was the one 
thing they had to obey. So everything was perfect for Adam and Eve in that garden with God, in his presence, in his holy presence and glory all the time. And they had dominion over all creation and had one rule to obey. So if that was so clear, then how did it all go so bad? And how did it all go so bad? Well, let's be reminded of how it went bad. After the serpent, representation of evil of Satan, is talking to Eve, he says this in Genesis 3, 4 through 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. Because Eve just reminded the serpent that said, if I eat that fruit, I'm going to die. He says, you, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And here's our important part for today. And you will be like God. Is that not at the heart of all sin? We don't want God to be God. We want to be God. We want to do it our way, not his way, our way. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil. So it says there, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Or another way of saying that, you will have God's authority. You'll have God's glory. Verse 6 goes on to say that Eve desired the fruit to make her wise. Another way that we could say that is she desired to have the knowledge that was only meant for God. She desired to to know what was reserved for God and God alone. Again, she wanted to be her own God. She didn't want to do it how God told her to do it. So as we know, Adam and Eve, in their pride and disobedience, those would be important words for today, right? Adam and Eve, in their pride and in their disobedience, sinned against God, and they brought sin into the world for the first time. And then, so in that, they lived in a holy, perfect world. So now they lived in a sin, sinful, fractured world. And it fractured the relationship with God, God being holy. And now they weren't sinful, but now they are sinful. So now there's a fracture in the relationship between them and God. There's a gap that they can't, they can't bridge because they can't come into the holy presence of God anymore. It fractured their relationship. You ever wonder why you struggle in your relationships with other people or with your spouse or with a significant other? Yeah, it's because of the fall, because now our relationships are fractured. If you remember from the story, even our relationship to to the world and nature is fractured. Isn't that crazy? That when Adam and Eve used to work in the garden, it brought them joy and everything they did was effective. And now we have to work by the sweat of our brows. The world kind of rebels against us. There's thorns and there's thistles and there's all sorts of pain that come along in this world. Listen, it even fractured our relationship with with ourselves. Have you ever thought about that? Listen, before the fall, there was no shame. Can you imagine living in a world where you never, ever felt shame or guilt or failure? You never suffered. There was never pain. It was only good all the time. Sometimes I think we forget that one of the most tragic things of the fall was what it broke inside of us. Romans 5.19 says it like this. I don't need that one right now, Tony. Romans 5.19 says this. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By Adam's disobedience, we're all made sinners. We all now have that curse of the fall inside of us. So through Adam's sin, through his prideful disobedience to God, we were all made slaves. As scripture said, we are slaves to sin and we are slaves to the fear of death. By the pride of men, all humanity was brought low. That's, that's the reality of Genesis. That's why everything comes back to Genesis. But in all that devastation, there was a promise that was made. If you remember in, in Genesis, there's a promise that was made in all that devastation that one day a son was going to come. On one day a son was going to come. And that son would bring good news to us. 
Because that, that son who would be hurt by the serpent, right, would be hurt by the serpent, but what that son that would crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of our enemy. So, this, so it talks about the son that it's actually going to be injured, is going to be hurt in some way by, by evil, by the serpent, by Satan. But then in the end, he's going to crush the head of the serpent and crush all of his power. And then, so from that day on, from Genesis, we're waiting for the day that God comes and he takes away that power. He takes away our shame. And so the rest of scripture, the rest of the Bible keeps talking about this son of promise. The sun that is going to come, it, it whispers about how the sun will, will conquer our enemy, how the sun's going to bring us salvation, how this suffering servant will restore our relationship with God, our relationship that was lost in the garden, a son that would take away our shame and bring blessing, not just to us, but to every nation and family on earth, a son that would finally bring back the peace that was in the garden that was lost, the peace between us and a holy and righteous God, a son that would turn suffering to glory. All through the Old Testament into the new whispers of this son. Did you know that there is a, a hymn that talks about how God's going to accomplish that? That it maybe doesn't talk specifically about the fall, but how a hymn that is it's about how God is going to make all of those things right? So for those of you that, that grew up in church and, and old school churches, we like to sing some hymns too, but some of you grew up in churches like me that only sang hymns, right? Some of you are probably right now having like, which hymn is that? Which one is he talking about? Um, I don't, maybe you didn't pick up on this, but you know the hymn I'm actually talking about? is the hymn in Philippians 2. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And I want us to look at it really quickly because I don't know if you're aware of this. Starting in verse 5, which is where we're really going to start today. Philippians chapter 2, with almost universal agreement across theological, broadly against all theological and scholars, which there's not a lot of complete agreement across the board and there's not complete agreement on this, but almost, almost complete agreement that this, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, was a hymn in the very earliest of churches. That this, this was a song, this was a hymn that they sung in the early church. And we don't know who wrote it. Some people actually think Paul wrote it. Not, and they actually don't think Paul wrote it for Philippians, that it was already a, existed in the church. Some people have theories like Stephen wrote it. I, I think it's just because Stephen's a cool guy in the, in the, in the New Testament in the book of Acts. They're like, ooh, I bet, I bet a guy like Stephen wrote this. We have no idea, honestly, who wrote this. But what we are really confident of is that this is a hymn. It's written like poetry. It's written like a song and that it was sung in the early church. And I don't know if you ever think about things like this, but how awesome is that? If we step back and think, what we're going to read about and talk about and pray about, and listen, preaching and hearing preaching is worshiping God, right? We think of music as worship, but that's just one way we worship. This is also a worship. The passage we're going to be worshiping in today is the same song that they were singing in the earliest church with the earliest saints, and we get to worship together with them in a way this amazing passage that God's given us. Isn't that kind of cool? If you think about it in that context. And so as we read Philippians 2, particularly starting in verse 5, I want you to, to remember that. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to give a quick recap, and then we're going to read the whole passage, and then I'll give a little bit of a recap as we go, and then we're going to focus in starting in verse 5. And so if you haven't been with us, um, we are walking through the letter of Philippians one verse at a time, sometimes literally on some Sundays like this one, kind of, one verse at a, literally one verse at a time. And the reason we call it a letter, if you're kind of new to this whole Christianity thing, we call it a, everybody calls it the books of the Bible, and that's accurate, but this was literally a letter written by the Apostle Paul who started this church in a city called Philippi. It's a church in the Roman Empire. I don't know if you know anything about the Roman Empire, but they controlled basically all of Europe and, and a lot of Asia at this time. They were a Roman colony in, in 
in the actual country now of Greece. So they were like Greece people under Roman rule, and there's a lot of Roman people that lived in the city. And so Paul, from prison in Rome, is writing to the church in Philippi, a church that he started, a church that he calls his family, to try to encourage them. Now listen, this is a pretty healthy church. Like our church, it's a pretty healthy church. But they had, one of the things he's really addressing in this passage and encouraging them is they had um, some people in their church that were having a major disagreement. I know that doesn't typically happen in churches, but in this one it did. <laughs> having a major disagreement. And Paul's literally asking them, help these women who seem to be leaders in their church, help them to agree. It's obviously causing pain in the church because they can't agree. And so Paul, in this passage, is reminding them the need for us to be united in Jesus Christ. That's the context. Healthy church that's having some issues. If you're ever in a church, just because they're having some issues doesn't mean it's a bad church or they're unhealthy. Every church has issues because we're a bunch of sinful people thrown together in need of a healer. This is a hospital, right, for those that are in need of a healer. And so things like this are going to happen. And so Paul's just trying to encourage them through this. So we're going to read this whole passage, 1 through 11. We're spending about five weeks just in these 11 verses. And, but as we go through, really pay attention to verses 5 through 8, and in particular 8, because that's where our focus is going to be today. So let's go ahead and read through it, and I'll kind of recap as we go if you haven't been with us. And here's a good example. Verse 2 starts off with, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and just in case, that's a weird question. Paul is not actually asking if there's encouragement in Christ, right? This is a rhetorical way of Paul talking to them, saying, hey, do you remember how much encouragement you've got from Christ? Do you remember how much encouragement you've gotten from Christ's body, the church? So he's not really asking if. He's about to say some profound things. So he wants to remind them of who Christ has already been to them and who the church has already been to them before he talks about this really important thing. Does that make sense? So let's start. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, right? Having our minds set on the same thing. Having the same love, right? The love of Jesus Christ that's in us. Having our hearts set on that. Being in full accord, and if you remember, being in full accord could also be translated, be of one soul. Be one soul. Be, be in full accord and of one mind, right? Our minds centered on Jesus Christ. So what this is really saying is, church, be of one heart. Be of one soul. Be of one mind set on Jesus Christ because he is your answer. He is what you need. And if we do that, what does it lead to? Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Some of you you're say rivalry. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's where the hymn starts. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." That's a beautiful passage, isn't it? It's like poetry. It is poetry, right? I don't know if you picked up on it, but as we're walking through it, like it, it kind of had a cadence to it, didn't it? It kind of had a rhythm to it. It's because it's a hymn. It's poetry. It's a song. So what this hymn is trying to tell us is a few things. Here's one. In verse 5, it says that we are to have the mind of Christ and that that mind is ours. So that kind of means two things. One, 
that we're to, to have the mind of Christ. We're to, look to like, we're to look to the life of Christ. We're to look to the things that he did, and we're, we're trying to follow that example, right? That's what we do as Christians, that whole what would Jesus do thing. That's actually a pretty good thing, right? Follow the example of Christ. But it's more than that. Because what he's talking about here, in this kind of humility that we're about to talk about in a second, it's not, it's not just saying that we follow the example. It's saying that the mind of Christ is in us. Listen, when you're saved, you're, you're turned into a new creation, a new heart with the Holy Spirit in you. So the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ, is the mind, the heart, the soul of Jesus Christ in us. So he's saying, you have Jesus in you. This mind that I'm about to talk, this heart uh, that in you is that of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is in you, working through you. You're not alone. You don't have to accomplish this alone. He's the one transforming you. The Holy Spirit's in you. Christ is with you. What an encouragement, right? It's not about you being better. It's about that Christ is in you. It can help make you better. Second thing this is telling us in verse 6 is that Jesus was in the form of God. That can sound confusing, but really it's not. Tony talked about it a little last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But you can think of the form of God as the glory of God. When we think of God in his glory, it's God, right? He's, he's so massive. And as Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance. I've always loved that word. Like he radiates who God is. He, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus was and is and will always be the display of God's glory. You want to know how to give God glory? Worship Jesus Christ and you'll give God glory because Jesus is God's glory. So we were created to reflect that glory. We're created to reflect the image of God. That's Jesus Christ to reflect his glory. So when it says that Jesus was in the form of God but did not count equality with God, it is saying that Jesus set aside some of that glory so that he could become fully man. It's not gone. He didn't abandon it. He set it aside. And then it says a thing to be grasped. I used to think like, oh my gosh, I can't even grasp that because that's so amazing. That's not what it means. It's a thing to be grasped means something to be held on to, something to take advantage of. So what that is saying is that Jesus, because he is the glory of God, has every right to grab a hold of the authority, the power, the divine omnipotence, the universal glory that is rightfully his. But he set it aside. He didn't grasp onto it. He didn't hold onto it. And why did he do that? Well, our third point out of this is verse 7, and it tells us, to really, I know for, if you've been in the church a long time, this is, feels like old news, but it, it should never feel like old news. He did it so he could do the most unimaginable thing possible. So that God could take the form of a man. But it's even more than that, isn't it? It says that he did it so he could take the form of a servant. If you're with us at the start of the series... We spent a whole week talking about that word servant, and some of you are like, why are we spending a whole week on one word? It's because this one word kind of defines exactly who we're supposed to be. Paul starts this off by saying that I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. It's how Paul describes himself. It's because he's trying to describe himself like Jesus Christ, to follow in his example. And if you were here, that Greek word is a heavy word, doulos, because it can be translated as servant. That's an accurate word, but to help us get a, a, a better picture of it, it really can be translated as slave. A servant slave. That's what that word translates as. Christ set aside his glory, his form, so that he might become a slave for all. Now, I want us to understand that that would have been an absolutely crazy and powerful word 
for those living in Philippi inside of a Roman colony. Servants or slaves in the Roman Empire had virtually no rights, no power, no authority, no control at all. Now, some masters gave them freedoms, but in the end, they had no real control at all to the point that they could even be humiliated or shamed or even beaten, and they couldn't do a thing to stop it. Church, do you think it's an accident that Paul used this Greek word doulos that means servant or slave, like interchangeable, servant or slave to describe what Christ became for us? Do you think he slipped up? Because maybe it's hard for us to think of God, Jesus Christ as a, a slave, but he, he used that word on purpose. Jesus, who has all the power, all the authority, all the glory, laid it down, laid it aside willingly to become not powerless, but like one who was powerless. Not to become one with no authority, but to become like one with no authority to become like one that has no rights, to be like one who has no glory so that he could be humiliated, so that he could be shamed, so that he could be beaten. Maybe we don't think about that very often. A lot of us fear pain, but a lot of us fear being absolutely humiliated in front of other people just as much as we'd fear pain. And we forget just how much Jesus allowed himself to be humiliated for the mission he came to do. Jesus willingly went from glory to shame so he could become like a slave. But again, it was more than that even, wasn't it? Look at verse 8 one more time, because this is really where we're landing today. I want, this one to, I want this one to stick with us today. Look at Philippians 2, verse 8 once more. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. You know, this passage already kind of told us, showed us what humility is, didn't it? It said it's counting others as more significant than yourself. It's, it's looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others with a heavy leaning in the Greek towards the interests of others, not your interests, but looking to the interests of others. But I really want you to promise, I really want you to process how God accomplished the humility for us. We know the story, but I want us to think through it today, right? I want us to look at it and, exam, and examine the example that Jesus Christ left. Because this is why, right here, this, this passage, this verse really is why we call this series Divine Humility. Right? Because Jesus didn't just show divine humility. He showed God-like humility. He showed divine or godly humility. Because Jesus gave up more than any of us could ever give up. Jesus looked to the interests of others more than any human could possibly look to the interests of others. He gave up so much, we can't even fathom it. It is beyond us. It's past us. It's holy. It's divine. That's what he gave up. And not only to mention, the Father gave up more and sacrificed more than any of us as parents could ever possibly imagine or grasp. That's what God's humility looks like. No one could look to the interests of others the way that Jesus Christ did in such a profound way. It's a humility that's divine. And I want you to hear this. A humility that is now ours if we are in Jesus Christ. Something that's so far beyond us we can't fully comprehend it. We'll still be in heaven, church, trying to comprehend the humility of Jesus Christ and that humility because the divine is in us is now ours in Christ. It's amazing. This, this hymn is calling us to look 
into just how far that humility went. Because I think if we understand the depths of it, it'll sink deeply into us and it'll change us. It says that in humility, he became obedient to the point of death, even. Death on a cross. He even went that far. Jesus says this about his obedience to the Father and to his will in John 10. Hey, Tony, can we get John 10, 17 through 18 up there? John 10, Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Right? He has the authority. He just set it aside, right? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. This charge I received from my Father. Jesus not only set aside, laid down so much that we can't fathom it, but he obediently and willingly did it for the sake of his Father, showing us us exactly what perfect obedience looks like. The obedience that was absent with Adam and Eve has been absent for so many of us. And, And here, I want us to be reminded that even for Christ, this wasn't easy, was it? For those of you that, that know, again, I know some of you this is brand new to, you don't know these things yet, and that's okay, right? We're so thankful that you're here, right? But for those of you that don't know this or remember this, this was really hard for Jesus too. If, if you remember, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Paul, Jesus could not wrap his mind around what God was asking him to do as a human. Now, now, Jesus knew exactly what he was called to do, right? But he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he cries out to his father, Father, if there is another way, let there be another way, but your will, not mine. It just shows us the humanity of Jesus Christ. He knew what he was going to do, yet in that moment, it was so big, it was so massive, he couldn't wrap his human mind around it in the, in the moment that what he was going to have to do. And so he's like, Father, if there's another way. So much so, there was so much strain. If you remember, he was sweating, literally sweating blood because of the strain of it. And it wasn't just the humiliation of the cross, which of course that was a piece of it, but he knew what he was going to the cross to do. Yes, be humiliated and shamed and tortured and killed, but to carry all of the sin, all of it for all time, all of his father's wrath. He knows how terrifying his father's wrath is, but he was going to willingly go to the cross. And in the moment when it came, it showed his humanity. Father, I don't know if I can do this, but not your will, but mine. But what did Jesus do? He faithfully, obediently, and as scripture tells us, joyfully, went to the cross because he knew what he was going to accomplish. Sometimes we have to walk into painful things, don't we? But we can even do that joyfully because we know what it's going to accomplish. Jesus knew what he was going to accomplish, so he walked into it willingly and joyfully. Now, I don't want to belabor this because we talk about it often, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but again, I just want us to be reminded that it wasn't just death, but the humility it took to die even on a cross. There's kind of a famous guy named Cicero. He was a Roman lawyer. He was a Roman scholar. He was kind of a Roman, we can call him a historian, but he was just a total Roman honk, so you can't really call him a historian because that's not really fair, but um, he was a smart dude. And Cicero once said this about crucifixion in relation to Roman citizens. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. I don't know if you caught on to that, but if you're not a Roman citizen and you try to bind any Roman citizen for any reason, it's a crime. Crazy, right? And they owned like, you know, a ton of the world at that time. So it's crazy, but it goes way further than that. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. 
You remember Christ was flogged, whipped terribly before he went to the cross. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. That's from a Roman about what it would be like to crucify a Roman. It was punishable by death to crucify a Roman citizen. That's how awful they knew it was. This is how Romans saw the cross. It was created out of the deepest depravity and the greatest ingenuity that humans could think of to do something as sadistic and cruel physically and emotionally and mentally as it possibly could be. Sometimes we just think of people like they died on the cross and that's terrible. No, it was created to be as awful as it could possibly be. I think, church, sometimes we hear about the cross, particularly those who have been around it for a while. I know some of it are new, right? For some of you, it's new. But for those of you who have heard about the cross over and over, it can almost become normal to us. But to a person at this time, to imagine God crucified was almost beyond what you could conceive of. Almost normal to us, a person at this time, to hear, wait, God? Was, did you just tell me that your God was crucified? Would have been impossible. That's why the Bible talks about, to those who are lost, the cross is foolishness. They couldn't wrap their minds around how that could possibly be true. What kind of God is that? That would allow himself to be crucified? I think that's why Jesus, I think that's why Paul says that Jesus was a point, was faithful to the point of, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That God would even go that far for those that he created in his image to break the curse that came into the garden is almost unbelievable. That's why that even is there. Listen, church, we, we know this, but Jesus is the son promised in the garden after the fall. He is the one promised and whispered about through, through the stories about Abraham and Isaac and Moses and David and the line of David, and he is also the suffering servant that's talked about in Isaiah. Isaiah, who wrote his prophecy 700 years before Christ was born. I say this every time I say this. I want you to think about really quickly how long ago 700 years was. Because when we're talking about history, you're like, oh yeah, 700 years. But think about where our country was 700 years ago, where the world was 700 years ago. And this is what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. You got that, Tony? Is it up there? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and, and with his wounds we are healed. Deep breath. Christ is healing us, has healed, and is healing. All the Bible is whispering and pointing and promising that a day is going to come when we'll begin to be restored. And this hymn is declaring to us to that. It's saying that by his divine humility, the humility of the glory bearer who took the form of a servant, who took the form even of a slave and in perfect obedience died on a cross, that he's doing all that so that the power of the curse might be undone, so that the power of the serpent and his evil might be crushed, and so that in Christ we might have victory. 
And that's why you might hear Christians say, we live in victory. We live from victory for victory, right? It's why victory mission is called victory mission because in Christ, we already have victory. We're not, if you're in Christ today, you're not straining for victory. You have victory because Jesus has already crushed the power of the serpent. He's already crushed the power of our enemy. We've already been set free. Listen, Adam was created in the image of God. He was our representative, right? He was the first. Adam was created in the image of God. But what did he do? He grasped for the authority and the glory that was only meant for God. So his perfect fellowship with God was taken from him. Through pride, as I said at the beginning, through pride and disobedience, Adam went from freedom in God, I mean just freedom in his presence, to the slavery of sin and death. A slavery that we've all in this room felt. And so he brought the curse to us all. Or to say it quickly, by one man's pride, all of us were brought low. All of us were brought low. Oh, but Christ, church. Christ who wasn't created in the image of God. Christ who is the image of God. Jesus who didn't grasp for the power and glory. That was rightfully his. That was his to own and to have. But he set it aside. He laid it down so that he might willingly take the form of a servant, take the form of a slave, giving up his rights so that through, through obedience, through suffering, through his divine humility, he might set free those held captive to the slavery that Adam brought on all of us. Praise God for that. Jesus allowed himself to be humiliated and tortured and murdered even on a cross so that we might be welcomed once again into the blessing of the presence of God. That's what was lost in the garden. And that's what Jesus has given and is giving back, uh, giving back to us so that we might recover what was lost in that garden so long ago that it might, be begin, might begin to be restored and so that we might look forward to the day in heaven where the, the Garden of Eden is going to be raised again, but this time it's going to be a city. The new heaven and the new earth where we get to live in what the garden was pointing to the entire time. This is what Jesus is giving, has given, and has given to us, and it's beautiful. By the pride of one, we were brought low, but by the divine humility of the Son, we are lifted high, church. This is what this hymn is telling us. Earlier, I quoted a little bit of Romans 5, 19. Here it is in its whole context. Can I get Romans 5, 18 and 19? It says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to, the, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Oh, what a great passage. Oh, church, what if we remembered this truth? What if we held on to this truth? What if we remembered what Christ did and sacrificed? What, we, what if we remembered what he gave up and that he became a servant, that he became a slave so that we might be set free from the slavery of sin and death? Church, what if we remembered this for each other? That when we got frustrated or angry or hurt or in pain with someone else, we actually sought reconciliation to make peace with them, to, to go and find the healing that Jesus Christ comes with reconciliation with other people so that we might be unified, one heart, one soul, one mind. What if we lived in that all of the time? To love with the divine humility that Jesus Christ showed us that is now in us, that we are not capable of alone, but we absolutely are capable of now in him together. 
What if all of us, you and me, strive to believe that, to live in that, and be a church that so radically loved and served that the world couldn't help but take notice of the love of Jesus Christ? As he says in John, by your love, they will know that you're my disciples. He's saying that they will know who I am. It's such an amazing truth. But you know what's even better than that? It, it offers more than that. I need a drink for this one. Last week I was studying for my sermon in Waffle House of all places. Right? I know some of you, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. There's only one good Waffle House, right, Brett? There's only one good one, but I was there. And one of the waiters walked by, and he looked at me, and I didn't know him. I'd, I'd seen him once. Um, his sister works there. I know his sister, but I didn't know him. And he walks by, and he's like, are you kidding me? He's like, you're reading two books at once, and then you're taking notes in another notebook? What are you doing? Um, I guess somehow he knew I wasn't a college student. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it gives away that I'm not 19, but anyway... Um, one of those books to most of us in the room would have obviously been the Bible. You would have noticed, but Ben didn't. Because I found out that Ben's an atheist. I'd call him an agnostic, but we don't have to, well, we don't have to get into that, right? He didn't believe in God. Well, later Ben comes back, and we just like immediately click. Right? We just start talking. We're, start, we're talking about all kinds of things. He's supposed to be working, but I'm like, hey, if you want to talk, I'm, I'm ready to talk. We start talking about all kinds of things, and then he ends up telling me a story. And I won't tell you how we got to this story, right? It doesn't matter, but we got to the story. And he's like, yeah. He's like, one time I was, I was pulling into the Walmart parking lot, and I was with just one of my idiot friends. I mean, he's like, listen, I love him, but he's an idiot. And he's like, we pulled it, and the guy cuts us off, and then my friend sticks his hand out the window and just flips him off. I almost just flipped you all off. Jeez. I don't flip people off, but it almost came out right there. That would have been bad. Don't flip people off, right? I don't do that. Anyway, he, he flipped off a guy. And um, they, they parked, and they, he get, gets out, and he just see the guy. The guy's like stomping over to him, and he's like, I, "I knew, I knew right then. This guy, this is likes to fight guy. He's walking over and wants to fight." And he's like, "Do you know what I did?" I'm like, "What'd you do?" He's like, "I walked right up to him. I'm like, hey, my name's Ben." I'm like, "Did you?" He's like, "He's like, yeah, I knew the guy wanted to fight, but he's like, like I've just realized in my life that like I don't, I don't want to be that guy." He's like, and he's like, and it wasn't like I was afraid of the guy. He's like, I've been in plenty of fights, right? He's like, but I mean, I'm going to be honest. I was a foot taller than that guy. Ben's about 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, and he's like, I outweighed him by what? I said, like, I bet I outweighed him by 100 pounds. Like, Ben's a big guy. And he's like, but you know, as I've gotten older and matured, he's 22. He's like, <laughs> as I've gotten older and matured and just made my mistakes, I've just realized that like, no matter how much strength I had and no matter what I could have done to that guy, that piece is just better. He actually said that. That peace is just better. Does that remind you of anything? And I said to him, I looked at him like this, I'm like, Ben, I can't believe you just said that. And he's like, what, why? And I said, I have literally spent the last two hours studying that exactly. And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, that, that Jesus, God, who had all of the power, who had all the strength, who could destroy anybody if he wanted to, didn't destroy us for, our, for how we messed up. Like you didn't destroy that guy when he messed up, but that he literally came down out of heaven so that he could go to a cross and die for our sins, giving up all of his power and humility, go to a cross to pay for all of our sins so that we could be saved, whether we deserved it or not. Like Jesus showed the kind of humility that you just said, but through it, he rescued all of us. And that opened up a 45-minute conversation about Jesus Christ. One of the best ones I've had in a long time. And here's what happened in that 45-minute conversation. You see, Ben couldn't reconcile 
the God that he knows, that he thinks he's heard of, with the humble peacemaker that I was talking about. Because he saw God as someone who just wanted to control everyone, who wanted everyone, hey, just worship me. He saw God as a narcissist, as selfish and vain. He saw God as a megalomaniac because if humans had that much power, that's exactly what they'd be. And I get it. He's like, I couldn't worship a God that's like, that's evil like that. That's how he saw. And so I listened to him, but praise God, he wasn't a hostile atheist. He listened to me too. And by the end, he was having a hard time because he just couldn't reconcile the God that he had in his head with a God that came down out of heaven as a servant, as a slave to all people, despite their sin and failure, because he wanted to rescue us simply because he loves us that much. I like to say that Ben gave his life to Christ right there in the Waffle House 45 minutes later. That's not what happened. Listen, church, will you pray for Ben? Will you pray for his soul? Because I saw the gospel do a powerful work in his life, but he's not there yet. Do you know the next time I went into Waffle House, I went back the next day. Of course I did. I'm going to be going back a lot. Ben and I are going to have a lot of conversations. I went back the next day, and when he first saw me, he walked by and he goes, hey, Like, we had an instant connection, right? We had a 45-minute conversation while he was at work, like, couldn't stop it. And he he looked at me like, like, you you need help? I'll be with you in just a second. Do you know why? Like, some of you, that might really discourage. And I'll be honest, at first I was like, dang it. Do you know why he responded like that? Because the gospel was doing work in his heart. When the gospel sinks into someone's heart who doesn't know Jesus, they are either going to fully reject it or they're going to accept it. The gospel hardens the hearts of those who want to follow their own desires no matter what, right? And so it, like, it hardened his heart a little bit. And honestly, I was a little bit encouraged. The gospel was working in one way or another. I want him to be saved. And then I came back in two days later. You know what? Ben acted way warmer to me that day. And I'm like, okay, I got you. I'm going to keep coming back, buddy, and you're, you're going to warm up to me again, and we're going to talk about Jesus again. I'm not going to shove it down his throat, right? But I'm going to keep loving Ben well until the day we get to talk about Jesus again because I can see the gospel doing work. Church, it's not just that you need the message of this hymn in Philippians. It's not just our church so desperately needs this message of humility and unity inside God's body, the church. It's that there's a broken world out there that doesn't know just how good our God really is and they need us to tell them how good our God is. Listen, Ben is a lost young man. I don't just mean lost because he doesn't know Jesus Christ. The dude does not know who he is. The dude has this black hole inside of him that he keeps trying to fill with the world and it's not getting full. He told me that, right? You know what Ben needs? It's just so obvious. Ben needs Jesus Christ. And if people like us who know Jesus Christ won't tell Ben about Jesus Christ, then who's going to do it? Keep going back to Waffle House. Keep going back to your place. Keep going back to your neighbor. Keep going back to McAllister's. Keep going back to your coffee place. Keep going back and love people well and get to know them well. And that bridge will come open. When he said, peace is, I mean, I had the power to destroy that guy, but peace is better. That Holy Spirit click came, right? Have you been there? And a lot of us don't say anything. And I know I'm a pastor, so it doesn't count, right? But that click came, and I knew I had something to connect that conversation to Jesus Christ without forcing it, without being awkward at all. And so many of us are worried. You know what could have happened? I could have said that, and he could have been like, cool, I'll I'll come back with one of your teas. And that would have been the end of it. No, is that that so bad? Or if somebody says, I'm not really into that Jesus stuff. Is, Is that so bad? Is that what we're afraid of? 
Yeah, I answered a lot of Ben's questions. But if you were talking to Ben and he asked you something you didn't have an answer to, do you know, I've talked about this so many times, do you know what you say to Ben? Man, that is a great question. I haven't thought about it that way before. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to go find that out. I'll come back and, and I'll let you know. Do you know how much it'll mean to someone if you care enough about them to go find out an answer so that you can come back and talk with them about it again? There is power in relationship. There's power in actually caring about people and hearing their story. There's power in being willing to follow up because you care enough to follow up. So church, here, here, here's it. This is it. Don't just beg God today to help you to truly believe this so that you can walk in it, but please do that. And, and don't just beg God to help all of us believe it as a church so that we might walk in the unity that he's promising here. Please do that. But there is a world out there, a broken world that needs to hear this message of peace, that needs to hear this message of peace that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've got to go out there and share it because, listen, church, why do we exist as a church? And why do you exist? To glorify God and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be people who give God all the glory and advance his gospel to a lost and broken world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.